Uh, I, I love that song um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, it really speaks and resonates on so many different levels. And, and I think in particular what I would call our attention to this morning is the reality uh, that we are called to a task, right? That there, there's still work to do. And to recognize that as the body of Christ, to recognize that as the church and to commit ourselves to such work. And, and I think that is uniquely appropriate on a day like today uh, because it is September 11th. And uh, this is a day that marks a, a very meaningful anniversary for all of us in a lot of different ways. And when you think back on the events of September 11th, it just is a, a stark reminder of the things that we need and want to pursue for the world, right? It's, it's a reminder uh, that uh, this world needs love, this world needs grace, this, this world needs forgiveness, uh, this world needs Jesus. And, and so here in a moment, as, as I open this up in prayer, we're going to be reflecting upon and, and thinking about all those that were impacted by the events of September 11th and those in particular that lost their lives and the families that were impacted. And, and I pray that in some unique way, those memories intersect with the words of that song that we just sung. And as we come to the word of the Lord and we allow it to speak to us, that it would compel us to go into the world and do the work that still remains because we know it is so desperately needed. And the church needs to be the one to rise up and to sing with their deeds, their thoughts, their actions, that we can represent this gospel as this world so desperately needs it. And so let's just spend some time uh, praying to that end for a moment. If you just bow your heads, let, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do come before you mindful of uh, what this day signifies for so many of us in this country. Um, and first and foremost, God, we lift up all the families and loved ones um, that were impacted uh, by the events of September 11th many years ago. And God, that even today, Father, we know that though it is uh, more than two decades in the past, it is still a very difficult thing to reflect upon for, for so many who especially endured it in a very close and intimate way. And so we pray that as they reflect upon those memories, they would be comforted today. Uh, that you would remind them of your grace and your presence and that your love, Father, that can really overcome and triumph even the darkest days and the darkest moments. Uh, that that would be a reminder that each of us would feel and experience, regardless of how close we were um, to that situation um, or how directly impacted any of us were, God. That it is a reminder of what you have called us to be, who you have called us to be as your church. Um, Father, that we can truly be a light that shines in the darkness, that we can rise up and sing um, and be that helping hand, to be that friend, to be the helper, God, um, so that the world that needs love, that needs grace, that needs forgiveness can find it in you and find it in this gospel. Um, and Father, that's exactly what we want to be challenged by today, by your word. Uh, now, God, as we turn to the scriptures, I pray that it truly would be living and active, God, that we would see it uh, as, as the way in which we can be molded and shaped and refined according to your glory and according to your truth. God, we ask that you would now speak to us, let your spirit inhabit this place, and let us stay focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I'm going to move the sin out of the way here uh, just to get things started. That's probably a good thing to do. Um, I, got a, I got a question for you, just a quick survey and, and poll. I guess you can say I'd like to do this from time to time, but just out of curiosity, show of hands, how many of you get a little bit anxious, nervous, afraid to ride an elevator? Anyone? All right, we see a few people. Actually, a good number of people. The, the, the research that I found last night was that around 4% of 
of people are typically afraid or anxious to ride an elevator. And, and I could imagine uh, there are a variety of reasons why. Let me ask the second question. How many of you, show of hands, have actually ever been stuck on an elevator? Okay, quite a few, right? Again, I feel like our church is defined the odds um, in that regard when I see that many hands because, again, the stats that I saw last night was that uh, I think the odds are one in every 100,000 elevator rides would be the chances of you actually getting stuck on an elevator. So that's, that's quite, those are decent odds, but yet still, by the show of hands, many of us have experienced that. I, I know I experienced it one time uh, in college. That was the one time I really ever got stuck on an elevator. I was a freshman in college. It was within the first couple of weeks of school, and I just joined a fraternity house. And uh, me and several of the other pledged brothers, we were over in the freshman dorms. I think we were like on the 12th floor, 14th floor, something like that. And we had to all be over at the fraternity house in a matter of minutes. So we're like, let's go. And so we all ran out and we went out to the elevator lobby there on the 12th floor, crammed into the elevator. I think it was like 19 to 20 freshman age college dudes getting on an elevator. Okay, so just picture that. And of course, that's not a good idea. Uh, but we did. We crammed into the elevator. And sure enough, right as the elevator doors, you know, were getting ready to close, we saw this one girl walking out as well on the 12th floor. And obviously her impulse was, I'll get the next one. But what did we say? We're like, come on. And she was like, okay. You know, and she gets on the elevator with us, which I'm sure was a tremendous regret uh, as she found out in just moments. The, the doors closed. And I looked up and I saw like the digital floor number, you know, that's up there in the corner, go from like 12 to 8 then flash a little bit, then 10, and I was like, that doesn't look right. And then the next thing I know, we could feel it literally drop, like that. And, and then the doors were stuck. And so all the guys that were up front, <clears throat> there was some panic, as you can imagine. The guys that were up front, like, pried open the doors, and we were between floors, and everybody just rapidly emptied out, <clears throat> excuse me, of the elevator. I was towards the back and kind of towards the side, so I was towards the end of getting out of the elevator, um, and I looked over to, to the girl that was on there, and she was panicked, and her eyes were feeling, filling with tears, and <clears throat> all the guys around me, <clears throat> I'm going to do it. <clears throat> I'm going to get through it. Jennifer will tell you, this happens all the time. Like, I'm at home. She's like, clear it. Clear it. Anyway, so, so we finally empty off the elevator, and the girl looks over. I look at her. Her eyes are filled with tears, and all the guys are like, that was awesome, you know, and just think it was incredible. Um, but you could feel that quick moment of going from tension of being trapped to just that joy of being uh, free and getting that release. And so I was thinking about that story last night, and it got me wondering, because that, that moment of being trapped on the elevator was very short-lived. I mean, maybe 20 seconds, right? I started wondering, what's the longest anyone's ever been trapped on an elevator? And I came across this article. I don't know that Guinness has good records of this or not. I can't say definitively if this is the ultimate world record, but found an article uh, of a story. This occurred back in April 21st of 2008. Uh, this was on abcnews.com, I believe is where I found it. And, and this was uh, something that happened to a guy that lived in New York. His name was Nicholas White. So he's, he's at his office in New York. Nicholas White is 34 years old. He's at his office in New York on a Friday night working late with just a few other colleagues and he decides to go for a smoke break. So he takes the elevator down. I think they were on the <clears throat> 32nd floor. <clears throat> Goes downstairs, has a smoke break, gets back on the elevator, starts going up, and it gets stuck. Well, it gets stuck at 11 p.m. on a Friday, right? So you can see where this is going. Uh, offices are not typically full on Friday nights, and it takes a while before they get full again. 
And so he starts to kind of, you know, sound the alarm. Nobody notices. He tries to pry open the doors a little bit and scream. Uh, nobody hears him. The video footage would show that uh, there were other maintenance people throughout the weekend, but none of them ever heard or noticed that there was something wrong with that particular elevator car. So he's stuck on the elevator, has no phone, no food, no water. He's quoted in the story that the only thing he had was Rolaids, right? That was his only source of sustenance. And, and he, you know, he panics a little bit. He's, he's sweating, even though it's cold in there. He, he would talk about how he would lay down on the floor for a little bit and then get up and just pace around. St- starts to get really worried that he was going to die of uh, dehydration and all this stuff because he had no water. And, and described himself in the article as not being a religious man, uh, but finally, and, and he had no idea like what, what time of day it was or how much time had really transpired, but it ended up being later Sunday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, that he started to pray. And it's Sunday at 4 p.m., 41 hours later, he was able to get saved and rescued from the elevator. In fact, there's a picture of him when he steps off the elevator that I, show, that I brought with us today. This is a picture of Nicholas White stepping off the elevator. Um, <laughs> for those of y'all that haven't seen Shawshank Redemption, you're sitting there going, why is it raining next to an elevator? Uh, this is a picture of Andy Dufresne from Shawshank Redemption, great movie. And, and I, I use this picture to correlate with that story because if you haven't seen the movie, it's the story of this man who was wrongly accused of a crime, thrown into prison, and then the rest of the story of the movie is him trying to escape from prison. And this is that moment, right? This is the moment where he's finally free. And, and to me, that's got to be the same feeling that Nicholas White felt, that even for a brief moment that I felt after being stuck on an elevator. And, and the reason I use those two ideas and concepts is because I really want to talk about that sense of joy of freedom after you've been imprisoned in something. Uh, the, the reality was, is I felt like probably be harder to relate to actual imprisonment, right, in, in the story of Andy Dufresne. And so trying to find something a little bit more trivial and yet something relatable, even as simple as being stuck on an elevator. But where we can tap into those emotions that we experience in life, be it physical or mental or emotional, where we feel imprisoned and we feel trapped and the panic, the anxiety, the worry, all those different things that happen. And then when you find freedom and the joy that comes with freedom, and how powerful that emotion really is. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today as we continue our journey through the book of Romans. Grab your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 7. We've finished our sub-series over the last few weeks that focused in on the renewed church. Now we're going back to just kind of our overarching theme that we've had for the year where we've talked about the renewed life, uh, living as God's renewed people. And we've used the book of Romans as our guide throughout this whole journey. And now we're in chapter 7. Uh, And we're going to be in chapter 7 for just a few weeks, right? For the rest of September, the next three weeks, we'll be in chapter 7. And then in October, we're going to do a series on doubt uh, and the way that we have to wrestle with doubts. And really, these two things will kind of work well together. You'll you'll see that as we move through that that a lot of what we'll talk about over the next few weeks with chapter 7, I think in many ways helps set the stage for why doubt is something that we struggle with. Uh, Chapter 7 brings a unique focus to this conversation. And I kind of want to do a quick review of what Paul has covered up to this point. You go back to chapter one, we get the basic introduction to the the letter, why it was written, who was writing it, and for what purpose. And you get to verse 16 and 17 of chapter one, and that's your theme. That's your thesis for the whole book of Romans, right? Uh, That there is a righteousness that has been revealed 
that is the power of God, it is salvation to all those who believe and that the righteous will live by faith, right? So Paul introduces that theme and then he begins to work extensively to unpack it. The rest of chapter one explains the struggle of humanity, right? That the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of mankind, right? And, and he begins to explain that this godlessness and this wickedness exists because of the great exchange. We have exchanged the glory of an immortal God for created things. And that has given birth to all godlessness and wickedness and all these, these detailed descriptions of that wickedness that you see in the rest of chapter one. And, and a lot of that is intended to be directed at the Gentile audience that's receiving this letter. But then Paul gets to chapter two and says, well, Jews, you've done the same thing. There's just as much godlessness and wickedness in your life and in your world as well. And so he, he brings them into the conversation. So that then in chapter three, you get that definitive statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? There is no one righteous, no, not one, is, is chapter three there. And so he, he explains all that, and then he begins to tease the idea that God has made a way, Romans 3, 21. Now a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed to which the law and the prophets testify, explaining that this righteousness comes by faith in Christ. Chapters four, five, and six explain the nature of faith, right, which would have been a very significant paradigm shift for his audience. And so he uses Abraham in chapter four. Abraham lived by faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He explains the, the benefits of this faith in chapter five. Then you get to chapter six and he explains this is because we have united ourselves with Jesus' death and his resurrection, drawing upon the imagery of baptism. Right? And because of that decision and joining ourselves with his death and his resurrection, we now are going to be offering ourselves as instruments of righteousness. And so for the first six chapters, he's gone extensively about explaining this paradigm shift, this new righteousness that puts on one side sin and the other side grace, on one side death, the other side life. And now in chapter 7, he begins to explain that even though this incredible thing has happened and has changed, there's still a struggle, right? And, th and that's really what we begin to wrestle with for the next couple of weeks is the struggle of it all, right? And, and why there is a struggle. That essentially we're, we're still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of this gospel. And so there's a struggle that we experience here in this life, in the flesh, as we're gonna see how Paul describes it here momentarily. And so this week, we'll talk about just the reality of the struggle, right? The struggle is real. But we'll be able to point to the idea that there's still joy in understanding that freedom has been secured for us. Next week, we're going to lean into uh, the importance of confession and repentance and the war that we have with the human flesh. And then the last week of September, we'll be able to celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus. And so with all that being said, here's what I'm gonna ask of you as we start these next few weeks of looking at Romans chapter seven. Embrace the struggle. I think that's something that a lot of times we don't want to do, right? Just inherently. Uh, we, we look at certain things in life and we want the results, but we don't always want the struggle that it takes to get there. It's why a lot of us have a hard time working out. Right? Like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be healthy. I'd love to lose weight. I'd love to be fit, but I don't want to wake up early. I, I don't want to actually go for a run. I don't want to actually lift weights. Like, we have all this kind of, kind of natural disposition to say, I want the results without the struggle. And we do that with our faith. Man, I want heaven. I want everlasting life. 
I want all these things, but I don't know that I really want to have to struggle to get them. And part of what we see is, man, that's just the way of faith. That's the way the struggle truly is real. But we can navigate that struggle knowing that there's joy in the journey because Christ has set us free. And that's going to be what we have a chance to really look at uh, today. So we're going to be in chapter 7. We're going to look at the first six verses, and we'll walk through that briefly uh, here together this morning. Follow along with me, starting in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who, ra- who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so here's, here's how I want us to, to tackle this. This is definitely a continuation of what he has been building on in terms of chapters four, five, and six, and in particular six, of offering ourselves as instruments of righteousness, crucifying ourselves with Christ, uh, joining with him in his death and the resurrection. He's building upon that. But, but here's what's happened over the last several chapters, is the antithesis that you've really seen has been typically between sin and grace, death and life. And now what he's doing is bringing in a, a unique uh, kind of third element or another angle and lens that has to be considered, and that is what does the law have to do with all this? Where does the law fall between this tension, right? Because historically the law was, was this divine entity. It was this revelation of God's will. But now what does it mean if I'm living by faith and not according to the written code? This is something he's been working through consistently now is returning to that idea of where does the law fall in all of this, okay? And, and so he's going to explain essentially uh, through an image or through an illustration of marriage, what this really means. But before we get into that illustration, I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of what he's really trying to emphasize. Because what he says in that opening verse is that the law has authority over every person until they die. I mean, that's, that's the summary of uh, kind of paraphrasing of what you see in verse 1. And so what, what this illustration on marriage is really intending to show us is not so much about marriage, but authority. Okay, and so here's the opening question I have for you this morning as we approach this text. What has authority in your life? Or, or who has authority in life? What have you given authority to in your life? The, the word authority means to rule, to govern, to master. And we've talked about this before, right? That, that every single one of us at some point or another have chosen something to be authoritative in our lives. Whether that choice has been conscious or subconscious, we have chosen something to be authoritative in our lives. So so what is it for you? Here's how the progression typically works. When we show up on this planet, 
right? When we breathe our first breath, that authority is typically chosen for us by whoever plays that parental role, right? They, they are inherently the authority figure that we have to submit to. They're the ones that are going to tell us what to eat, when to eat, how to eat, right? Shelter, clothing, rules, guidelines, that all comes from a parental figure. So, so we automatically have an experience of knowing there is an authority in our life. But as we go through childhood, we begin to push back on that authority, correct? All the parents are like, amen, yes, see that all the time. And a lot of times people will focus in on like the high school age as being the real you know, struggle in terms of authority between parent and child. But the reality is that it exists throughout childhood, correct? Like, like children are constantly testing their parents' authority, right? Like, oh, what are you gonna do if I keep throwing a fit? Right? What are you going to do if I eat more sugar? Now, what, what will you do if I keep drawing on the wall? Kids are always testing authority. Right? They always want to know what's really going to happen. And that continues throughout childhood until eventually you get to a place as you enter into an adulthood where you realize they don't have authority over me anymore. Right? I've been testing it my whole life. And, and now I get to realize I'm, I don't have to sit under it anymore. And, and whenever we reach that point, we make a decision to replace that authority. And we say, this is now going to be what rules, governs, and masters my life. And so people will choose a lot of different things. Again, subconsciously or consciously. They'll choose religion. They'll choose their careers. They'll choose family, marriage, relationship, children, um, pleasure, right? Like, people will choose a ton of different things. What have you chosen? What's the authority in your life? Here's, here's how you begin to answer that, okay? If you take this idea of, of governing or, or ruling or mastering your life, you can start asking yourself, what consumes most of my thoughts and what dictates most of my actions? And that's where you really begin to have somewhat of a litmus test, right? If, if you're giving so much of your energy, your time, your thoughts to your career, right, then it, it's, it's reasonable to say it's ruling over you. If you're giving most of your thoughts, your time, and your energy to your children, right, even though that might be a quote-unquote good thing, there's still a chance that it's ruling over you, right? You could give yourself to, to pleasure, to, to indulgences, whatever it is. Like, what is it that really dictates and governs your thoughts and your time and your actions? Now, here's the reality. As I start walking through some of those examples, and I talk about career or family, what a lot of you are going to start thinking, especially if you do some digging and some introspection, is you're going to say, yeah, but I don't know that those things really have authority over me. Because even though I work really hard and I care about my job, I, I want to do it, right? I, I've chosen this career. I, I'm passionate about these things. This is what I want to do, right? I know that I care about marriage and all these things, but I, it doesn't control. I still get to decide. Like my, my children, I'm still in control. And now you're really starting to hit at what the real authority probably is. It's really probably not something, it's probably just yourself. Right? That's ultimately where most of us land. Who has authority? Who has control? Me. I'm the authority of my life. Right? And, and that's typically where we land. And that's going to be what Paul refers to here in a little bit as the sinful flesh. Right? And that's where we begin to encounter a struggle is that sense of self that constantly tries to rule and dictate everything that we are. And here's why that's problematic. 
right? Because what the scriptures teach and what Paul is inferring here in particular is that when we have a certain authority over ourselves, it can become a prison, right? Like, like it, it binds us, it locks us up. So you can run after your career, you can run after family, you can run after all those different things, but at the end, right, in the end, it kind of forms a prison if you're not careful. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, what has true authority over my life? And not, not just the Sunday school answer, but when I'm truly honest, what have I given authority to? And so that's, that's what Paul's trying to explain with this illustration, right? And so here's the illustration. He talks about marriage, right? And for the Judaic audience in particular, but all of them that are reading this, this is gonna make a lot of sense to them. Uh, it's slightly different for us because we have a different approach and view of marriage in our context today, but you'll still be able to track with it pretty easily, right? That according to Jewish law, when a woman was married, she was bound to her husband, period, the end. And that, that being bound to her husband did not stop unless the husband died. And so if the woman ever had any impulse, if the wife had any impulse to, to leave her husband, right, to, to go have an affair, to go be with another man, whatever it was, if she did that while that husband was alive, it would result in her being known as an adulteress, which was a label and a sin that was punishable by death, right? So like that's what the law said. And yet interestingly, as soon as that husband dies, she's actually free to go make those exact same choices and not be seen as an adulteress. So, so what is Paul trying to say? Well, a couple of things, right? The first thing that I really wanna draw your attention to is the language and the terminology that's embedded in this illustration, right? Because the words that he keeps using are words like bound, which means in prison. Uh, release, which means set free. And so while he's using a marital illustration, the message and the point is about going from imprisonment to freedom. And the one point that he's trying to make with this illustration is that the only way that you move from being imprisoned to freedom is through death. That's his point. Now, this is where the illustration kind of breaks down for Paul if you try to follow it very, very literally. He's not trying to get you to follow it literally because if you do that, you start asking about, well, who's dying and when and in what capacity. All he's trying to say is that there is no pathway from, from that sort of bondage and that imprisonment to freedom without death. And so then you get to verse four and that's where he makes his point. So, so you then have died through Christ. The only way you break free from this authority, this bondage of the law, this life of the flesh is through the death of Jesus. That's the only way it happens. And so he begins to introduce the death of Jesus and the impact it has not just on being set free from sin and death, but now being set free from the law. Now this is a really interesting component to this discussion, right? Because that's part of what he's trying to get us to understand is in what way does the law play a role in all of this, right? In what way do I begin to understand it? So, so just some quick context before we make the application. Part of what we see with the law is that the law is still a divine entity, right? Like Paul still uh, believes and respects and, and points to the divine quality of the law as it being the will of God. So it's not to say that when you die to the law, you just get to toss it aside as if it doesn't matter. 
That's not his point. What he's trying to get us to see is that the law accomplishes a couple of things. It, it falls in this, this dichotomy, right? This, this tension between sin and grace and life and death that the law still falls on the side of sin and death. And here's why. Even though it's a divine entity that you don't toss aside. The reason it falls on that side is because what the law does is it helps you understand what sin is. And the way he describes it actually even kind of arouses some of those sinful desires by giving it a name, right? And so, so think about it, and he talks about this in other places, right? I wouldn't know what it means to covet until I knew what coveting was. And so what the law does is it defines our fleshly impulses. It defines the realm of the flesh. It defines sin. Oh, that feeling that I have towards lust, towards, towards those impulses, that's coveting my neighbor's wife. Oh, that feeling that I have to, to take from someone else, oh, that's, that's stealing. That feeling that I have to, to desire someone else's land or cattle, whatever, that, that's envy, that's jealousy. I can't do these things. The law names them. But in addition to that, it helps us understand that to live that way and, and to, to fall short in that way leads to death. So the law both awakens our understanding of what the sinful desires are, but then reminds us of where the sinful desires lead, which is they lead to death. And so there, therein lies the contrast and the comparison that Paul is making in these opening six verses, right? When, when you live according to the realm of the flesh, you bear the fruit of death, right? But, but notice the contrast that takes place here. Because what he's trying to accentuate is that though that's our inherent disposition, the death of Jesus has set us free from that bondage. Not that we cast the law aside, but are actually able to live into it in a new way. That in this freedom, through the death of Jesus, what we're now able to do is actually bear the fruit of God by serving the way of the Spirit. Okay, now this is the only time in chapter 7 that the Spirit is referenced, all right? Um, and, and yet, chapter 8, the Spirit becomes much more of a fixture of Paul's discussion. But here's what he's doing in these first six verses. He's now revealing to us the contrast. He's revealing to us the struggle, right? That, that on one hand, you can have the flesh. On the other hand, you can have the Spirit, right? You, you can bear the fruit of death, or you can bear the fruit of God. And, and that's the tension that we have in this life. So here's, here's how it works, and then we're gonna to try to apply it for a moment, okay? Essentially what he's trying to get us to see is that we can unite ourselves with the death of Jesus, right? Because that death has actually occurred. It has happened, right? We can unite ourselves with the death of Jesus and in so doing crucify ourselves with Christ and try to put to death the impulses of the flesh. However, we are still awaiting the resurrection, correct? Now, you, you can feel the initial impact and, and benefits of the death, burial, resurrection, and salvation of Jesus Christ in this life, in this moment. But when you choose to follow Jesus, you do not become disembodied spirit. You still carry the flesh, and so as long as we inhabit this body and wear this flesh, we will have a struggle between what will be the authority of our lives, flesh or spirit. And so which is the authority for you? 
by which one are you truly living? By the flesh or by the Spirit of God? What fruit is being born out in your life? The fruit of death or the fruit of God? That's the question, right? And, and yet he's giving us that reminder of hope that you have the you're not imprisoned by the flesh. There's actually a way that has been made known to you to experience freedom. And so for us to really wrestle with that, right, and to really try to, to give some, some, I guess, greater understanding of, of what that looks like, the fruit of death or the fruit of God, I, I want us to turn to one other section of Scripture. I don't have it up on the screens for us, but if you want, you can flip to Galatians 5. Uh, this is a, a passage that is typically pretty well known anytime we have conversations about the way of the flesh or the way of the Spirit. And, and here in Galatians 5, Paul gets very descriptive. And, and I want us to read through this section, hearing these descriptions so that we can do the hard work and embrace the struggle and really evaluate, like, what is the authority in my life? Am I living more in accordance to the flesh or to the Spirit of God? And, and this text gives us some really practical, identifiable things to consider, right? And so as we read through it, consider the details of it, and let's look at this uh, collectively, and let's look at this together uh, this morning. I'm going to be in chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 13. Here's what he says. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Can I say that again? You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. Amen? We are not called to live in captivity and bondage, church. We're called to be free. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. That's exactly what his death has done. So if there's anyone in this room that feels like you're hopeless or helpless, don't listen to that voice and hear that you were called for freedom through Jesus Christ. And it's possible, right? We were called to be free. However, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, right? What he's saying is, is that because we have this freedom, that doesn't mean that I can just die to the law and now do whatever I want, right? I, I have to just disregard this divine entity and this code of conduct that God has given me. No, I get to actually fulfill it in a new way. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Are you doing that? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? That's how we fulfill the law. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. For they are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. So there it is, right? There's the struggle is real, okay? For us to recognize each and every day that while we inhabit the flesh and try to live by the Spirit, there's going to be conflict. <laughs> We're gonna have to, you're gonna have to put in the hard work, right? Now, now, the good news of Jesus is that there's grace in that, there's strength in that, there's power in that. It's not by merit, it's not by your own abilities, but there is a struggle. And we have to go into each and every day cognizant of that, mindful of that, so that we can make 
every effort to give ourselves to Jesus, to offer ourselves to Jesus, to live by the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, for the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. All right, so there's your list, church. Right now, now you have something very tangible, something that you can measure to say, okay, what's truly been the authority in my life? What's truly uh, is being born out as fruit in my life? Is it the acts of the flesh or the acts of the Spirit? And Paul just described them for both of us. Here's what I don't want you to lose sight of when we begin to ask that question, right? I don't want us just to consider the conduct and, and the nature of it. I want us to consider the cost, right? I think it's obvious, maybe, um, oftentimes in hindsight, that when we live according to the flesh and the fleshly desires, and that's the authority of our life, and we're imprisoned by those things, it's costly. It may feel right in the moment, it may feel good in the moment to pursue pleasure, to pursue all those different things, but the reality is, is that it's going to imprison us. And it's gonna cost us dearly in this life. And a lot of that is, is clearly seen. But here's what I don't want us to miss is what Paul explains that it's gonna cost you. Is he says, those who live in such a way will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it doesn't just cost you relationships. It doesn't just cost you health and well-being and meaning. It, it costs you the kingdom. Like it is a significant cost. So what Paul is saying, you, you want to pursue sexual immorality? You want to run into that? You want to run after hatred? You want your life to be driven by discord and division? Jealousy, envy? It's incredibly costly. It's a prison. And so what we need to pursue is to recognize that through the death of Jesus, we've been set free. And we don't have to stay there. We don't have to be shackled by that. Right? Those chains have been broken, and we have a chance to actually live into the fruit of the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit of God, and let the fruit of God be born out in our lives. And what does that look like, church? Well, that's a life that knows what it means to love, to love God and to love others. That's how you fulfill the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let your life follow the Spirit by being joyful, recognizing each and every day truly is a gift. Today is a day, church, that the Lord has made. Choose to rejoice and be glad in it. We should be joyful people. That's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Right? We, don't, we don't run over and, and run into divisions and factions and, and hatred and discord. We choose peace, a peace that transcends understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. 
Right? We choose patience. The fruit of the Spirit makes us patient people. Forbearance is the word that's used here, right? That we're patient. We know what it means to wait and to wait patiently on the Lord, right? We're, we're going to be kind. It's going to make us kind people, good people. The way that we treat others, the things that we pursue, the sort of things that we fill our lives with, it's going to be things that are kind and good. We're going to be faithful. That's the fruit of the Spirit, that even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't make sense, we're going to remain faithful. We're going to trust God. It's not just faithfulness. It's gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit teaches us that we can pursue all these things and assume a posture that isn't aggressive, that isn't hostile, that isn't angry, that isn't arrogant, but gentle, humble. And then what is the last one? Well, the fruit of the Spirit leads to self-control. Why? Because there's a struggle. <laughs> because we still have the flesh and we're gonna have to put to death these fleshly desires and pursue self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And so what's the authority in your life, church? What fruit do you see? And How do you see it playing itself out in your day-to-day? Here's, here's where I'll close. I want us to, to really recognize the tension between flesh and spirit. And that's, that's what chapter seven takes us into. And we're gonna go headfirst into it next week. All right? And we're gonna really embrace that struggle. But what I don't want us to lose sight of this morning is that there is joy in freedom. Right? That though there's a difficult task ahead of us, though it isn't just easy, we can be joyful even in the struggle because we can see what our Savior has accomplished for us. Right, that Jesus has essentially gone before us. He, he died the death that we deserve so that we could be cleansed and set free from the fleshly and sinful realm. And while we await this bodily resurrection, this promise to be with him forever, we can trust in it because we saw that that's exactly what he did. He went to the other side of death and conquered the grave and is now leading us home. And as we struggle in that journey, day by day by day, we can do so joyfully because we know the Savior has set us free. And we are walking the path of freedom. And so let us be joyful in that church. We were prisoners, but we've been set free. We have been forgiven and accepted. We've been redeemed by his grace. So let's let the house of the Lord Sing his praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you. And we thank you for the freedom that you have secured for us in Christ. And we pray, God, that in this moment we can worship you in that spirit and truth that joyfully gives you praise for the cross and the hope of the resurrection. God, we acknowledge it is a struggle to war against the flesh and to live by the spirit. But God, may we do so with a dependency not on our own abilities, but a dependency upon you, God, that we would keep in step with the spirit. And we're so grateful, God, that you send your spirit as that counselor, as that comforter, as that that guide that leads us into truth and helps us day after day that we can trust in you, lean into you, Father, and begin to bear the fruit that only the Spirit can provide. Let our church be a place of love, joy, peace, patience, God. Let us be people of goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness. Let us be in self-control 
that our lives would bring you the glory that you so richly deserve and we would truly experience day after day the joy of being set free. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.